Weekend Warriors, the Foreign Affairs podcast that asks, what else is happening in the world? I'm S.E. Cup. So unless you live in his Texas district, it's probable you've never heard the name John Ratcliffe before last week. In announcing the sudden departure of Dan Coats as the director of national intelligence, President Trump has picked Ratcliffe, a congressman from Texas, to succeed him. Trump said, quote, we need somebody strong that can really rein it in, because I think you've all learned the intelligence agencies have run amok. They run amok. But many in the Senate on both sides of the aisle had been supportive of Coates and are skeptical of Ratcliffe's ability to do the job Trump wants him to do. His qualifications seem based solely on the fact that Ratcliffe tore into Robert Mueller on the president's behalf last week in those hearings. In fact, the little intelligence experience Ratcliffe claims to have had is unraveling. According to his House website and campaign material, he said he'd won terrorist convictions while a federal, federal prosecutor, claiming to have tried suspects accused of funneling money to the Hamas terrorist group. But an aide of his now says, well, he'd merely investigated side issues related to an initial mistrial and didn't prosecute the case at all. So the intelligence community has really been battered by Trump since he took office. Ratcliffe will be vetted by the Senate Intelligence Committee. What will his eventual possible confirmation mean for national security? Joining me today is Phil Mudd, CNN contributor, ex-deputy director of the CIA's Counterterrorist Center and the FBI's National Security Branch. He's got a new book called Black Sight, the CIA in the post-9-11 world. Phil, I want to talk about your book, uh, but first, I want to get you to weigh in on this new news. Do you think John Ratcliffe is qualified to become DNI? But my, my view has changed in the last couple of days. I came into this saying, look, he doesn't have a lot of experience, but the more I look at this, the more nervous I get. And the president has mm. not done him any favors with, with his comment. The reason is pretty simple. When the president says the intelligence community has run amok, I assume he's, he's referring, for example, to the fact that he's not on the same page as the intel guys on everything from the reliability of Kim Jong-un to what the Iranians are doing to what the Russians will do in the next election. It almost sounds like he's asking for a DNI who will simply go out and say what the president says. That's true. That is not what the mission of the intelligence community is. And that means to me this is going to be a tough hearing because my question would come down to, why do we believe this guy if the president simply wants him to do what he did during the, the hearings for Mueller? Yeah. Do you think that that for, for President Trump, that's real, truly his only qualification and, and usefulness that he saw him in that hearing standing up for Trump? Well, that's interesting you ask that. On the surface, I would say, look, there have been people in the intelligence community at the leadership level who haven't had a tremendous amount of experience you look at somebody like Leon Panetta, wasn't an intel guy. He had a lot of experience in national security from the White House, but didn't grow up in intel as some of the people who have been, who have been DNI have. Yeah. But then I waited a moment. And I saw, wait, it's not that the president said, I looked at other qualifications that said, this guy brings such judgment and, and temperament to the, to, the, to the table that I have to nominate him. It's because I think he saw him on TV and said, cool, he's in. I, that's what it looked <laughs> like to me. So as a prosecutor in the, in, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, Ratcliffe would have worked with FBI agents investigating terrorism cases, right? Is that, I mean, is uh, that some level uh, of experience or no? And let me, let me, uh, let's dish some dirt here. First, I don't know right. the cases he worked on, but I was listening to your introduction about Hamas fundraising. I mean, there's terrorism and there's terrorism. 
In my mm. world, to take you inside baseball, in my world, Hamas fundraising is a federal violation. Terrorism is about prosecuting people and finding networks, uh, some, some, in some cases global, that are involved in trying to blow people up. Hamas fundraising cases are significant, but if that's your resume, I think you can fool the American people. An intel person would say, dude, you, you got to bring an A game. That's about a C game. Okay, so what do you think it was, for, you know, knowing from the inside, what, was, what wasn't Dan Coates doing that Trump wanted him to do? There's a, a couple things I, I'd, I'd point to. I mean, first, publicly, Coates was uh, speaking publicly, including in testimony about his views on the intelligence. Now, when you're in a position like him, and I've prepared talking points a thousand times for CIA directors and for the FBI director when I was there, Robert Mueller, the guys and, and the women in the, in the trenches give you the information, what's going on with Iran and North Korea, for example, and you sit there and figure out, how do I explain this to the American people? Coates talked about things that the president didn't like to hear, and the DNI has to speak publicly, including in front of Congress. So I think the bottom line was the president saw a DNI who talked about the intelligence and didn't talk about it in a way that supported the president. And, of course, an intel person would say, well, what the heck is Coates supposed to do? Is he supposed to change the intel? You can't do that. Uh, I mean, that's truly kind of terrifying that, that, that instead he wants someone who, who, who maybe will, will lie to the American public about intelligence. I'm not sure I'd use the word lie. I, th I think I could see someone sitting up there saying, well, look, I just don't believe my guys. Uh, I have deeper suspicions, for example, about what the Iranians are up to. I'm not sure my guys have it right. So let me give you my personal perspective, which in my perspective, and this is me speaking as a DNI, my perspective would be that the president is closer to right than my intel guys. Now, that's not a lie. That's certainly not representing the intel, though, and that would really frustrate the people in my old life. There's a sign at the CIA entrance that says the truth shall set you free. The truth isn't what the president says about stuff like uh, Russian interference in, the, in, in elections. That's going to be a tough one for a DNI if he wants to side with the president. Well, let's talk about frustrating the people in your old, old life. When the president says the intelligence agencies have run amok, what does that mean? to folks who serve in the intelligence community. What do they hear? What I heard was they're not saying what I want them to say, sort of echoing the conversation we just had. Yeah. I mean, it's odd because you sit there and say, and say the president you know, took a lot of flack, obviously, at last I noticed, for ousting the FBI director and putting in his own director. He mm -hmm. had his CIA director leave and put in place somebody that he praised uh, extensively, somebody I worked with, Gina Haspel, who's excellent. He also put in his DNI. That was Dan Coates. If they're running amok, I guess if you run an organization and the president is running the executive branch, in addition to being the head of a political party and a face for Republicans to America, and you nominate the three people you say are running amok, I think I would ask, excuse me, Mr. CEO, um, I'm trying to find polite language, uh, WTH, what the, what the, WTH, what the heck? Don't laugh. Uh all right. Um, all right. Let's talk about your book, Black Sight. Now, you say what happened internally in intelligence in the decade after the 9-11 attacks has so rarely been discussed and hardly ever written about publicly. Why do you think that is? There was so much attention uh, around what happened after 9-11. We have looked back, you know, in, in large in large ways at what we did after 9-11, but not, not here, you said. 
I think there's a, there's a few reasons why. Number one, you know, this is boring, but writing books is, is not that much fun. So you got to sit down and say, I'm going to spend the next three years working on this. I traveled around talking to people, but I think there are other people. Some of my friends don't think this is appropriate. They don't think that we should write, including people I contacted for this, this book. And I mean very close personal friends, one of whom said, no, I'm not talking to you. This is a guy I've had beards with more times than I could count. I respect his view, but, but I think there are a fair number of people who say, I, I don't want to write about this. And then the, the final thing I'd say is, man, this is a raw cut. Um, yeah. We're 17 years after the first black site opened. Last one closed 10 plus years ago. Um, it took people a while, I think, to uh, those of us who are on the inside to say, to, to let the dust settle and sort of some of the wounds heal. This might reopen a few of them, but uh, I certainly yeah. don't think I could have written about this eight years ago. Well, you interviewed, as you say, former colleagues who give really unique perspectives from, you know, the exact moments of the attacks to the hours and days and weeks and months that followed. Were you, because you were you were there, were you surprised by anything that someone you talked to said? Uh, I hate to bore you, but no. Um, the book is purposely written in third person, though I witnessed and participated in some of what's in the book because I thought it would get confusing to go back and forth between they and I. So, I mean, yeah. I was familiar. I knew almost everybody I interviewed and familiar with what they talked about. But I know I take that back. One thing, the consistency of their views was pretty. There were a few outliers, but it was not hard to chart the arc in the book, which is basically you go into a, the program, which in the beginnings were rough. The program matures and then people get cold feet and say, we're out of this. The, the views that I and I probably interviewed 35 plus former people and, and had my own reflections. The views were pretty consistent with just a couple of exceptions. It was not I didn't have to, to herd cats when I was writing the book. Well, and you say that many, many look back their views on those days. They look back with their hands up. You say a mixture of guilt and, quote, we had to. What do they feel guilty about? Uh, I, you know, I don't remember that word being in the book. I didn't I don't think there was much guilt. There was a sense before the attacks, you know, people looking back, and I want to make clear, I'm not talking about black sites saying, boy, I wonder if yeah. we could have done more. So you could see guilt if you're in the pre-9-11 era saying, man, we tried our best and there nearly 3,000 right. people died. I don't want to suggest that I heard a lot of guilt about the black sites, but yeah, there was a lot of, yeah. I, I wish I could find a better word, Look, a rueful remembrance is saying, man, you know, what a... What a tragedy. And they were part of a tragedy. I think that was a pretty palpable sense in a lot of interviews. So when Trump talked about bringing back torture, I remember talking to you about it back when we used to yeah, I remember that. Yeah. each other at yeah. D.C. And you, you basically said to me, good luck getting anyone in intelligence to participate in that ever again, because the ones who did when they have bipartisan support from Congress, still got hauled to court and some even went to jail. Talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's you've captured exactly right. When I speak about this, people say, well, that must when you say it won't happen again, it must mean obviously that you feel that what we did was wrong. You didn't reflect American values. And I have to say, uh, sorry, I grew up playing Little League Baseball. I know what American right. values are. It's more right. because you look back and say we learned the lessons of what happens afterwards when people who have to um, sort of write the laws and who talk to you in front of the American people and have the power of the people, that is the Congress, decide that they don't like it anymore. If you're right. in a leadership position, putting your people 
in a position where five, 10 years later, they're going to go through that again. I can't imagine a CIA leader saying, I'm going to sign up for that. But again, it's not because they think what we did was bad. It's because they right. say, we're not signing up to put my people at risk. Only once. Um, so people no, who watch right. you on TV, yeah. they love how passionate you get. And it's sort of, I think it's sort of rare to see someone from your world as, you know, emotive as you often are. What, what's making you mad right now? <laughs> uh, boy, you know, it's funny. I had a New Year's resolution. I have not talked about this to be a little more measured. And I, I think I'm doing about I, I'm not I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm doing a little better this year. I, I sometimes I got a little too emotive over the past couple of years. I'm trying to correct that. But I, I think the lack of um, it took a long time for us to, to just come out and say the president lies. I mean, the Oval Office is so revered in this country. The lack of transparency with the American people. I understand politics and how you want to shade everything from economic figures to how well we're doing with NATO allies or how well we're doing in Afghanistan. But simply getting off a plane from North Korea and saying we're safer, we haven't done anything yet. You know, yeah. talking about the intervention in the election and instead of saying, look, this was horrific for the American democratic process. I'm going to from day one have my national security advisor give me a plan for how I talk to you and how we defend against this. I think people would have honored the president for that. I don't blame you know, him that the Russians were trying to, to support him in an election. Just looking at the American people and telling them untruths in, in his airplane about not knowing about a payoff to a pole dancer. Just, I, I just, it's just, what do you tell a seven-year-old? You get to the top yeah. office in the land and it's just a perpetual lie. I, it just very, I find that frustrating. Well, I really hope that you don't curb, curb your enthusiasm as it, were, as it were. Because a lot of this stuff in the past has been talked about in sort of sanitary, sanitized terms, and it's not always connected and tethered to real, you know, human issues. Why foreign policy? Why national security? Why this matters to real people? And I've complained to you about this before. I want, you know, I want people in the news business to talk about foreign policy in real ways, not from textbooks not from people who, you know, remember D-Day, but in real world, how this impacts me today terms. And I think that's why you're so great when you talk about these issues, because you talk about them both from inside, from having been inside, knowing what's going on, but also in ways that real people can understand what all this stuff means. I think it's really important. Well, I'll keep trying. I, I, you know, it's interesting as a former Intel guy, I've been doing the, been on TV now for quite a while. And I think one thing you don't realize, and a, friend, a lot of my friends will make fun of me, they don't realize is how hard TV is. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to complain. It's a great gig. It's better than working in government. I can guarantee that. But yeah. uh, the speed of TV uh, and and the 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 practice it takes to say, okay, I got thirty seconds. If I have this idea, I want to get across. Do I want an example? Do I want an explanation? Do I want a joke? How aggressive am I? How can I say that with eye contact, without ums? I swear, I see. I'm still learning this. I, I still find it really difficult. Well, you're right. I mean, being in, you know, being in television, you're making a series of choices every few seconds. Yes, and yes. some can lead you into total disaster and some, you know, some can really pay off. But you, you're really great at it. And you're, Thank you're, you're natural. Thank you. And the book is great. Um, it's called Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. So much is the author. Thank you, Brent, for joining me on Weekend Warriors today. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for me. I'm Essie Cup. Join me next time for another episode of Weekend Warriors.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 